city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. One of the more interesting aspects of forensic interviewing when we're dealing with persons of interest and suspects in cases, especially serious cases such as homicide and sexual assault, is the aspect of false confessions. Why do people falsely confess to things that they never did? And so I can't think of anybody better to come in here and discuss the issue of false confessions and all the dynamics associated with false confessions than Dan Sosnowski, who's on our forensic death investigations team as a forensic interviewer and a polygraph examiner. Welcome to A Thread of Evidence, Dan, and let's get right into this issue right away. What is a false confession? Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me back again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, It's always interesting to talk about these topics with you and obviously your audience. But we we go back, and that's why I always ask, what's the question? What what is a false confession, and how does that lead to other aspects? And, And you kind of said something in your introduction is why would a person confess to a a serious heinous crime that they did not commit um i've been in the law enforcement field uh when i joined the military as a police officer in 1969 i was a police officer i was investigator especially when i was a police officer in the suburbs of chicago you know back in i started in 1973 and, and for the six and a half years I was an active police officer, I would always ask myself, there's nobody in their right mind would confess to a crime they did not commit. And then, of course, years later, when I'm actively involved in polygraph and I actively involved with some, some attorneys or police agencies, um, that they're worried about false confessions. And it comes down to what reason, and it's, and it's always what reason people do anything. Um, and, of course, the, the research I've been seeing and reading about or hearing about or attending a workshop, um, the bottom line, research has shown that when a suspect's free will is restrained, they're more likely to confess to a crime they did not commit. But then, of course, what, what are some examples? What's free will being restrained? Uh, and how can law enforcement, without maybe even realizing it, do it? Um, I, I think... Most agencies are aware of, well, is are covertly and restraining somebody's free will. Well, Dan, that's fascinating. So, you know, riddle me this. So why do false confessions occur? Well, as I was saying, when, when someone's individual, they feel they're, they're being restrained, their free will, their mental capacity, whatever we want to call it. It, it, it comes down to the factors that we constantly see in cases that are coming out that have been kind of shown, maybe proven, uh, that was a false confession, uh, there's a number of common denominators, which include duress, uh, coercion, intoxication, uh, diminished capacity, mental impairment, ignorance of the law, 
uh, fear of violence, uh, the uh, actual infliction of harm, uh, the threat of a harsh sentence, uh, maybe misunderstanding the situation, being told that the criminal act is no big deal, uh, being told they can go home if they just confess. So you can see there's a lot of issues that police have to weave uh, in and out of, and they're on thin ice sometimes. Well, let me let me ask you this then. Let's just you know, in my hypothetical, the person has got no mental impairment. He's not intoxicated. He's not under the influence of drugs or anything like that. And nobody's threatening him with you know uh, the death penalty or anything like this. What about the people? Well, I guess my question would be, Dan, what are the motivations of a person that would falsely confess and then be prepared for my follow-up question because that's going to be what about people that self-report and falsely confess you know what i mean right yes okay yeah. so there's a existing murder uh maybe the murders uh, happened two or three years ago or maybe even a fairly recent murder but you know the police have been stymied all of a sudden there's a call and somebody self-reports a false confession but let's take let's care care of that first question about what could be the motivations of a person that falsely confess absent, you know, threats of imprisonment or death or anything like that? Well, we always have to worry about, again, if there's no underlying issue, mental issue, uh, uh, some other maybe illegalities that happened, uh, why would a person, again, confess to a crime they didn't commit? We have to look at, is there like internalized uh kind of coercion in their own minds that they feel maybe I'm responsible for doing it. Maybe I did. That. I'm not sure. I can't recall. Um, but sometimes, you know, people come in, of course, one of the fascinating cases always that's been forever was the Lindbergh uh, kidnap case, the baby case. Right. Where, Why don't you go over that with, I'm familiar with the case. Why don't you go over it with our, with our listeners? Well, if people familiar uh, with, Charles Lindbergh, you know, was the first individual basically to fly across the ocean and was well-known, well-received. Uh, he, he was, back then in the early 1900s, a hero. Um, obviously, he had a small baby. Uh, somewhere, they were living in New Jersey. Someone broke into their house, they think. Uh, but someone kidnapped the baby. Um, and there were scores of people. We're talking hundreds of people came out and admitted to being involved in kidnapping the baby. So now you got to wonder what it was it some mental impairment coming out uh, that there was some issue dealing with reality was is one huge issue uh, was it an issue where people were coming forward for notoriety that boy if I confess to the you know kidnapping the Lindbergh baby my name's going to be in the press I'm going to be everywhere um, and whenever that's only price we're talking early 1900s um, but now here's another example that that comes out that was. Uh, from a number of years ago, uh, where it cut a lot of press in, in the modern day press, you got TV, was the John Benet Ramsey case, where again several individuals came out and said they did it, uh, but there was one in particular, uh, and my name the name escapes me. Um, was that the guy that went to Thailand? That's correct. Okay, uh, he was in Thailand and he got arrested by the police in Thailand for perhaps some kind of sexual case. And while in custody, uh, blurts out, hey, I'm responsible for killing John JonBenet Ramsey, which is again, was a well-known 
international case. Um, of course, when I'm hearing that, I'm looking at him. So, okay, why is he, com- you know, confessing to a crime like that? Um, what's he worried about in Thailand? Um, right. Because of course, the Thai's got some serious, serious punishment, especially for. Uh, crimes involving children, and I think that's why they popped him in the first place, Dan. I yep, think it, exactly. I think it was a sexual crime involving uh, children. That's and correct. I always thought that first of all he was a little bit, you know, a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic. Yeah. But then after that, I, I thought his motivation was, man, I need to get out of Thailand and get yep. extradited to the states, and then we can always, you know, tell them that hey, you know, I, I was, you know, I falsely confessed. Yeah, I let the case fall apart. It was interesting because, like, you, you call, thought maybe it was an error. I was looking at him, listening to all his uh, interviews, saying, you know, he's, he's a wingnut. He's, you know, something, something's off. Because uh, it just didn't make any sense when you listen to him, talking to him. And that's why, again, interviewers, police officers, detectives, forensic interviews, or my record, criminal defense attorneys, any attorney, we, we need to really pay attention to what they're saying and how they're saying it. And does this story add up? Um, of course, once he comes back here, um, and again, he's from the Atlanta metro area where I live, uh, John Benet Ramsey's buried in the Atlanta metro area. So it was kind of always interesting to me and fascinating, uh, what was going on. And then you find out, sure enough, uh, he says, well, I, I sort of made that up. And it goes back to what you alluded to. Yeah, I, I, I got to get out of time. Right. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, the police did see some of his, uh, property. He had a laptop that supposedly had a lot of uh, child images on there, and somehow, somewhere, that laptop got lost uh, in in the chain of custody and evidence. So, but again, we're we're back to you know well-known documented cases. Why would someone come forward? Um, I think there's some other cases. Going, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I try to keep up the research. And studies or cases that come out uh, in the media, uh, some people just feel this compulsion. Well, I've done so many bad things in the past um, that I got away with. And now maybe they find religion. Maybe they feel this need for uh, absolution or absolution and say, look, I'm going to go ahead and say I did this and I'll be punished for that. So I'll be punished for my past transgressions and I'll feel better about myself so we're always like why you know that it's so interesting because to me uh with my mental health background it seems to me that there definitely is a mental health component to this where where people are perhaps more dysfunctional mentally than not is that the way you see these things when these people come forward and and I'm, I'm talking about cases you know dan like we talked about absent coercion uh you know threats of you know the death penalty or this or that or or, or actually mitigating it and not saying hey it isn't it isn't a big deal uh where i see that maybe the police investigator you know the moving force behind the false confession is really the investigator instead of the guy but do you see that mental health component in these things oh, we're seeing that that's a real common denominator with the false confessions that have been proved to be accurate or maybe even absolute that they, we always look wait, okay what's that behavior what's that common denominator and they keep constantly coming up they're looking at the age of the individual they're looking at the mental health status of the individual 
but kind of going back to kind of one question, if there's no real mental health issues, but then, then the problem is, are they borderline? Uh, are they truly functioning society and they're there, but they're just low level uh, processors, but they're getting along in society. But the situation when they get interviewed by the police, do they truly, truly understand uh, what's going on? And I, one of the things I quoted earlier was the misunderstanding of the situation. Um, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, people believe, well, if I tell the police, if I cleanse my soul of this uh, involvement, I'll be able to go home. And sometimes you're told that. And, and it gets really confusing in the, for these individuals. Well, you know, one of the things, and I really want to, you know, I've got some follow-up questions on this and in regards to, you know, forensic investigators and, and, you know, how we're able to spot these things and, you know, how we're going to guard against obtaining a false confession. But, you know, maybe you will agree with me, but I, I see, because I work all sides, I see cases where investigators and or prosecutors sort of lose their way in their desire to resolve the case. And, and what do I mean by that? You know, the advocacy, no matter if you're a forensic investigator, and I don't care what side you're on, or you're a prosecutor, should always be a search for the truth. Ultimately, you can't find justice unless you find the truth. And, and rather than that, they become advocates in clearing the case. And no matter how, they're able to clear that case. And and to me, that's where we see problems during the interviewing process where detectives are just so interested in getting that confession and maybe there's some political uh, uh, pressure on there to, to, to wrap that case up. And the same thing with uh, with prosecutors. Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with that. That there are times there is that rush to judgment. We've got to solve this case. It's very high profile. Uh, we don't care what you need to do. Just fi find somebody, arrest somebody. So the general public feels much more comfortable uh, walking outside or going downtown or going whatever. Uh, I get another great example here in my backyard, Atlanta, is from several years ago, 1996, with the Olympic Park bomber. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Yes, very Olympic, much so. Just, the Olympic, Olympic bombing, just right? Started. They just started. Just kicked off, and the very first night, overnight, boom! Here it is. Uh, there was talk. Well, we got to close down the Olympics. You talk about a financial disaster uh, to not only the city but the United States, and then the embarrassment not only to Atlanta but the United States. Uh, oh my gosh, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, let's bring in all the experts. Let's bring in the FBI profiles. Let's bring in everybody, and boom. Um, Let's look at the security guard who turned out to be a hero. And he was the, he was the reporter. He's the person right. that, that found, was it the backpack? Was yeah, it a he back? found the backpack. He found the backpack. He's the guy that found it. And uh, all of a sudden he became, was that Richard Jewell? Richard Jewell. Suspect, right. He became suspect number one. Oh, he fits the profile. Right. Uh, that was well known back then. You know, oh, uh, white male between the ages, maybe 25, 35, underemployed, living at home. Well, Richard Jewell, unfortunately, fit that profile. Right. And then, of course, they go back and say, well, you know, he fits this other profile, just like with volunteer firemen 
who set fires so they can discover the fires so they can get the recognition. Correct. Yeah, there, there's a psychological dynamic, yep. uh, you know, with people that, that do things like that. You know, the thing that, that people have to remember, and I think you you understand this as a forensic interviewer and, and me as a guy that attended and, and passed the FBI's, uh, you know, uh, behavioral profiling uh, course, and, and that is, look, when they when you start doing these profiles, it usually means that they brought in the profiler, and I've done a few of these. They brought in the profiler when either they've got nothing going on <laughs> or they've got too many suspects right. going on, and they, they need you to sort of narrow it down. So they want you to pull a rabbit out of the hat on one because they got nothing going on or they got too many uh, suspects, uh, and I've worked both of those kind of cases. I've worked one where they had 15 suspects, and uh, we were able to correctly narrow it down to one, and then we had one. I've had, I've had a couple where there was absolutely nothing going on, uh, but what they tell you in profiling school, and it was interesting in the Richard Jewell case, they should have remembered this, is that even with a psychological profile, you're only about 20% accurate out of the 10 profiling components that make up the profile, okay? If you can get, even if you can get two, that's looked upon as being, hey, you did a fairly good job. <laughs> However, your, your, your batting average is 200. Exactly. But, right, so, so, yeah, that's important. Oh, absolutely. But, but, it, it's, it's, but going back to your original point, which you brought up about, what about the rush to judgment? Exactly. Um, because we got well-known documented cases that were, they were way off base. And, you know, for, for several years, the, the real bomber, Eric Rudolph, was running around and eventually bombed some more places. Uh, well, what happens there? Uh, but here, here's another, since you brought that up, too, was uh, years ago, because I, I teach at a, a police academy up in northern Virginia. I've been teaching up there for years. While I was up there, what was going on is, of course, the D.C. sniper shooting. Uh, and, and, of course, what comes along Here's the FBI profile saying, well, it's two white males driving around in a white box van and they're doing this. Well, in the meantime, all the resources are being applied to let's look up for this and let's look for that. In the meantime, they find, eventually find out that the two guys that were arrested, uh, African-Americans, are driving around in an old Monte Carlo. But that car was stopped like 12 to 15 different times on, on field stops. It's okay. You're free to go, but in between, they end up unfortunately killing the additional people. So there's a high price to pay when we get the wrong information. We're chasing that wrong rabbit, it, and that's exactly right. Hey, Dan, let's uh, let's bring up uh, this topic again and uh, take a short break. You're listening okay. to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special co-host today, and that is Dan Sosnowski, a forensic interviewer and a licensed polygraph examiner on a thread of evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. 
That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. So, Dan, can you give us a little idea uh, contextually of, uh, you know, how often false confessions occur? Well, according to some of the recent data coming from the Innocence Project, I don't have the exact quote, but I'm real close on these numbers, is that, as you know, the Innocence Project will work with people uh, who say they were obviously falsely accused, falsely confessed, or convicted of a crime they did not commit, a combination of all of them. Uh, they're only looking at cases that involve either a homicide or a rape because they really want to look for the forensic evidence, especially the DNA. And they came out and said, of the individuals who've been exonerated through the Innocence Program, which is roughly close to 300, it's real close, uh, of those individuals, roughly 28% of that 300 uh, gave what turned out to be document confession, which is kind of startling and scary. Well, that's a lot. 28% out of 300? Correct. And that's documented. You know, it's so interesting because I look back at, you know, of course, we can only, by context, we can only sort of refer to our own careers and, you know, what you've done and what I've done during our careers as police officers and detectives. But I got to tell you, you know, the whole time, and I've interviewed thousands of suspects, uh, I think I can very confidently say I never had a false confession. But it, it's also uh, you know, two things to me. Number one, it's uh, understanding behavioral issues of the individual that you're interviewing. And number two, and, and we'll talk about this as, as the show progresses, but how do we as, you know, forensic investigators guard against uh, having problems like that? So we make sure that every interview uh, that we conduct with suspects and persons of interest are as accurate and as honest as they can possibly be. But a lot of it goes back to um, the case prep. Now, we're talking about serious cases like the homicide and rape or sexual assaults. Um, yeah, we're going to maybe grab someone off the street. You're going to have a suspect, but still you should be able to have some kind of time to do homework and do case prep and find out facts uh, that are known only to that suspect. Uh, but also you gather information about this individual who you're going to interview. Uh, find out some of these things. Um, and, and again, if, if, if it's possible, can a detective or investigator have some time to do some, some vetting and some, some background uh, digging on the suspect? Uh, the more you know about your suspect, obviously the better. And I firmly believe the more you understand uh, anybody who you're interviewing, their personality uh, and how they think and how they process uh, what motivates them to certain things, the better off you are. Boy, you know, let me let me chime in here for a second because uh, I really appreciate this last comment that you made. You know, and that's where I see, you know, of several mistakes that detectives make and interviewers make. They don't do the homework. They just don't look at things. Uh, they don't put in that psychological component and that behavioral component. You have got to research the people that you interview. You've got to know something about their background, their personality, their motivations, uh, you know, sort of what floats their boat. Exactly. And you can't go into an interview room unprepared. Well, unfortunately, that's what we see. Um, 
because if we were, again, we get the rush of judgment, uh, agencies are undermanned, understaffed. You get a major, you got to solve the case, close it. Solvability, solvability. If you want to get promoted, you want to stay in this unit, you, you know, your solvability factors, you know, down to 62%, you're not cutting the mustard, uh, you're back on patrol. But then all of a sudden, does that give the incentive to individuals maybe to fudge here and there because they got to look good on paper? And that, to me, is a scary thing as well. But then we're back to it's simple interview tactics and techniques. What are they, what are they learning? Where, what techniques are they learning? You know, I, I've evolved over these years from teaching because my background, I was, I was you know, trained at the read technique, worked at read, taught to read, uh, and then uh, was teaching the, the practical kinesic interview technique for a number of years. And I found I, I've got to put different spins to it right. um, because of my background, because I was a former police officer. And I think even more importantly, because I'm, I'm actively doing interviews in the real world. Well, I, I was doing a lot of work in, in the UK, teaching polygraph. And, of course, their interview tactics and techniques completely different, which gets into the peace model, which we can talk about completely different segment. But more importantly, the, the peace model, the acronym, the, the P stands for preparation. And I don't think we do enough of that. I agree. And they, people have to learn. And then to, to put it in a different perspective, depending on the suspect, what who they are, we're back to personality, but now we've got to factor in what happens if they're from a completely different culture. Um, they got different norms, different beliefs, different religions, different reasons, different motivations. And if we don't understand them, especially if they're first generation, uh, you, you, you're not going to develop any kind of rapport with this individual. If we don't develop rapport, we're not going to get a, a lot of good, solid information. You know, I, I totally agree. And let me let me just add something to that and, and support what you're saying. I've had to work uh, as a detective. I've had to work with, uh, you know, several different cultures. All right. As, as police officers uh, and, and investigators do now. OK, because uh, look how. uh you know, different uh, the United States of America is today in 1919 as opposed to what it looked like in uh, 1970, for instance. I mean, we have so many more, uh, you know, immigrants in this country from far different lands uh, than we used to see, you know, and especially uh, lands from Asia and uh, in the Middle East, uh, Eastern Europe that we didn't used to see, and also Africa that we didn't see as much. And when you are interviewing some people from those different cultures, uh, you know, deception is a big part of that culture. And, it, and if you don't understand that, you, you know, for instance, I've had persons of interest and, and witnesses, let alone suspects, lie to me uh, when there was absolutely no reason to lie to me whatsoever. You know, and, and you just kind of shake your head. But then, you know, you sort of understand as you spend more time with the culture uh, that that's just part and parcel of how they work with the police because they're so distrustful of the police. 
right? I mean, that was the biggest one. They're so distrustful because they live in uh, very restrictive uh, societies. You know, they live in communist societies, Marxist societies, uh, very repressive societies where uh, the police are, are really the bad guys, you know? Correct. And, yep. and, and of course, even, even a witness that has no reason to lie is going to lie to you, right? Well, they're worried about it exactly because again, what's the culture? What's the upbringing? Right. What's when you go back, what's the motivation? Well, they've grown up for and for years and years and years saying you can't trust the police. And we look at all these different third world countries and it's unfortunate. Uh, things are bad. Uh, and, and like you said, so it, it, the police are some of the bad guys. Right. Exactly. And then when they come here, their first interaction, perhaps with the police, they go, well, what am I supposed to do? Uh, so it, it's completely different. And, and I've seen it so many different times. Um when a case maybe goes sour and you say, well, how come I couldn't get this person to tell me anything? Well, because you go in there, you know, guns blazing. Uh, it's my way to highway. Uh, this you're an American. I don't care what it is. You, you know, you come here in America, you better adapt by our rules and our regulations. And you go in there and you condemn them. You're yelling at them and screaming at them. It's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, you're just actually exacerbating uh, their their perception of what an American police officer is in the first place, and their their contacts culturally is in their own country. You know, right. and, and uh, let me ask you let me ask you this question: uh, with all of the negativity about police that we have these days, you know, you've got Black Lives Matter, uh, you've got the politicians, uh, you know, uh, uber-liberal politicians, uh, you know, telling people to be trust distrustful of the police, uh, you've got the mainstream media, you know, uh, forwarding the false narratives about police, just talking about Americans in our American culture dealing with police and we're talking about right now in 2019 as opposed to uh 1980 1990 and this you know tremendous distrust of the police out there do you see our problem as forensic interviewers getting worse yes i do because now we're back to Whenever we've got it, we process and we think because our brains, I think, are truly like a computer. But if we get garbage in, garbage is coming out. And why I'm saying it is if we don't get really good information from a witness or even our victim, uh, but of course in this day and age, witnesses don't want to cooperate. Correct. At all, because again, because of the media, because of this, and the old saying out there uh, is, you know, snitches. Uh, get uh, stitches and end up in ditches. Um, it, it was a bad thing when I was a police officer, again, we're talking years ago, oh, snitch is terrible, but it's much worse now, uh, depending on where you're at, what part of the country, uh, again, part of the culture that's even here in America, uh, how they looked at. And if we get wrong information, uh, even again, as a really sophisticated, trained interviewer, uh, if I don't have the right information, I I'm going to make mistakes. Right. And if we don't have the right information, we could falsely accuse. And unfortunately, we could get people who confess. Right. No, that that that's exactly right. And well, let me let me switch gears for a minute. And you know, we were talking a little bit about the motivations uh for people falsely confessing. Let me ask you this question, Dan. Uh are there are there differences in the motivations 
between adults and juveniles who falsely confess? Oh, absolutely. And again, it's really interesting because that's where some of the most recent research is coming out. Uh, and, and they were looking at, again, these false confessions, and they started looking at the dynamics. Okay, what's, what's the common denominator? And I've used that term earlier, but the common denominator, a lot of them are juveniles, and unfortunately, some of them have mental health issues. And then, of course, juveniles don't understand uh, the, the criminal justice system. Um, they're under depression to say, well, if I just tell them, I can go home. Uh, and, and we're seeing that so often and because juveniles don't understand the law. They don't understand Miranda, even though yet it's on TV a lot. Uh, their juveniles are being taken in at maybe 12, 13, 14 that are suspects in a homicide. Uh, they're being interviewed maybe by two to three police officers in a room. So there's a, there's a psychological intimidation with them. But they're constantly saying juveniles are more apt to confess to a crime they did not commit. And uh, you know what? I would agree with that. All right. Because I've had uh, juveniles that started down that road and I had information that they did not commit the crime. And right. I had to actually stop them mid-interview and, you know, get them to consider what they were starting to say and, uh, and actually, you know, back, back them out of that for their own good when I knew that they were factually innocent. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right about something like that. What about, what about women as opposed to men falsely confessing? Can I first ask you, um, who, who confesses falsely, statistically more, men or women? And then what's the difference between men and women falsely confessing? Well, it's kind of interesting because all the cases that I read about or hear about, it was the vast majority, it's probably going to be at least 98%, I'm just throwing that number out, um, that, that are men. We just don't see women basically doing that. And when we do, again, what's the motivation? And many times they come out and say, it's there to protect someone else. It's there to protect a loved one. It's there to protect a kid. But they're doing it from that maternal instinct. Let me switch it up to this question. Now, we've been talking about the motives and motivations of people that falsely confess. So my question would be, are there any differences between those motivations and people like Jesse Smollett that you and I have talked about before on a thread of evidence who falsely report? I think there's a common denominator. And again, we're back to what reasons. Uh, is it I'm looking for notoriety? Am I looking for that fame? Am I looking for uh, just to get the attention, whatever it's going to be? Now, again, some of those individuals that confess to crimes they didn't commit, uh, do they have that diminished mental capacity? And they just feel that I, I need to talk about this. I need to get this out. Maybe I did it. Someone tells them, why well, you did it. So I, and they convince themselves, internalized, uh, convince themselves, well, maybe I did do it. Um, maybe I was drinking a lot back then. I was using a lot of drugs back then. So maybe I did it. Um, but I think they're coming out and saying things, um, especially the ones that we could look at, the cases like Jesse Smollett or some other ones. Uh, there's, there's that underlying reason uh, what am I going to get out of it? What's what's in it for me? Well, that's that's so interesting. Listen, let's take our final break and come right back and talk about some more of these issues. 
You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, Dan Sosnowski, a forensic interviewer and a well-known polygraph examiner on a threat of evidence. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You're back on a thread of evidence with Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest today, Dan Sosnowski, a licensed polygraph examiner, a forensic interviewer, and the newest member of our forensic death investigations team. So, Dan, you know, we've been talking about these issues of false confessions, why people falsely confess, and I think you've done a wonderful job, you know, kind of lining that out for us. But let's go in this direction, which I think is very, very important for detectives and forensic interviewers like us. And so what tips about regarding steps can interviewers take to maximize the success of any interview that they do with persons of interest or witnesses, victims, and suspects? Great. I'm glad you asked that because I truly think and believe, and I had to change my my philosophy thinking and approaching my interviews years back, because it doesn't matter who you interview. I don't care if it's a witness, it's a suspect, it's a victim, it's anyone, and I don't care what it's about because interviewing is generic and transportable. Doesn't matter what the crime we're investigating uh, happens to be. And I'll, I'll tie in real quick to, to make my point because with, with polygraph, people call it, you know, oh, it's a lie detector. And I said, but not, you know, it's not a lie detector. Think about this. Um, because the crimes you could in, investigate armed robbery, burglary, carjacking, drug dealing, sex with animals, sex with children, sex with prostitutes, arson, murder, rape, everything. It's not any of those detectors. What it comes back down to is the person going to withhold any type of relevant information that's pertinent to that investigation or during that interview. So that means victim, suspect, witnesses. Doesn't matter. Now, that I got that out because we have to look at what's we got to interview in a certain way. And, and unfortunately, some of the old interview techniques out there are outdated. Uh, and, and we're seeing updated research that everybody has to be paying attention to uh, because you and I are in this field. And if somebody comes out with some updated, validated research saying, well, you know, maybe this doesn't work. I can't just say, well, I don't care because they told me this works. I, I've got to change. Uh, let me let me throw this out. Um, some recent research uh, that came out of Canada. Uh, this uh, professor of psychology at Memorial University published a study. Well, of course, here's the magic word. He published a study, which means anybody has access to it. Um, and they suggested that Canadian police investigators are not following best practices when interviewing suspects because they don't allow them to talk and provide information freely, meaning the interviewers are constantly cutting people off. And they follow up. And he said uh, this research reviewed 80 different transcripts of police suspect 
interviews at Canadian Police Agency, and they found that Anders tend to dominate the interview with accusatory and short answer questions, which obviously is going to pair their ability to get good and accurate information. Absolutely. And that's on us. That's on, that's on the interviewer. And I've learned over these years uh, a different approach. As I mentioned, I, 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 I was trained and considered an expert in the other techniques, uh, taught it for years. What I kept saying, something's not resonating with my students, with the investigators. Um, and I, I had to learn, I've got to pay attention to what they're saying. I've got to learn to shut up. And that was the whole issue. And then I, I, I tie that in, as you said, successful interviews. And that was interesting because we could talk about this more later, uh, about the interview course that I developed called Five Stages of successful interviews, um, and I and I tied in how we testify in court, and the light bulb came to me years ago. I said, well, "Wait a minute! If this is going on in court, does it make a lot of sense?" And when I when I took that approach, and I, now I've got police detectives and police officers saying, "Ah, now I get it. Now I see it," because I draw a really nice analogy for them. But we've got we've just got to learn to shut up, and it goes back to that preparation uh, that we tend to be type A personalities, the vast majority of interviewers and police officers in particular. We got that type A personality. And of course, some of the aspects of a type A personality is we don't listen. We don't have patience. We tend to be direct and blunt and forward. So we, we tend to cut people off all the time without realizing it. But once we give them that afford them the opportunity, tell me your side of the story. That's where we get the inconsistency. You know, you you're a hundred percent right. Uh, and you know, I can't discuss the case because I'm currently involved in it. But I'm doing some very difficult forensic interviews right now, and uh, with with a series of uh, witnesses in, in in a big case I'm working, and uh, you know the uh, attorneys that are watching me. And prosecutors that are, you know, watching me do these interviews, uh, one of the things that they remarked was they said, hey, Doc, you know, it's so interesting. You never interrupt these people. Exactly. <laughs> and I go, that's right. <laughs> exactly. what, are we, what are we here for? We're here to listen to them, okay? Not us. We're not here to listen to us, okay? We're, we're here to listen to them. You know, when I, when I think they've said enough, then, then you know, then I'll, uh, then I'll, you know, interrupt them or, or whatever. But I always let them go you know, A to Z. And then, by the way, when I get my turn, uh, I want to hear him talk again, but I want him to go Z to A, because as you know, it's so much harder if you're being deceptive going from Z to A than it is from A to Z. Uh, you know, my, my other part of my interview is uh, just, you know, questions of clarification and reconciliation. So, you know, after I uh, develop rapport, which is so important, uh, when you're when you're interviewing people, and I don't care who they are, victims, witnesses, you know, persons of interest, suspects, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, you're not going to get anywhere with them uh, unless you first, uh, you know, develop a rapport and, uh, and and develop a baseline that that you can witness of what their responses are going to be when they're not under intense stress. And well, then after, and then after that, just let them talk. But but as you said, I mean, we've learned the hard way. You know, early on, it was always, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guy. Exactly. 
cats, there we black cats. Exactly. Uh, we, it, it goes back to the old days, growing up as cops and robbers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lock somebody else up, right. uh, and we don't give them the time. And, and it was very difficult to kind of make that transition. But when I saw it working, it's like anything else. You try it, you get rewarded. Ooh, I'm gonna try that again. You get rewarded. Ooh, that worked too. I'm gonna get that again. But it's the rapport building that I find out to be, to me, so amazing. Well, and you know, yeah, you're you're exactly you're exactly right. And then you know, and let me just you know put in a couple of two cents worth here too that I'm sure you're going to oh, agree sure. with, and that is really all of us that are involved in an investigation. Ultimately, our advocacy has got to be for forensic facts and evidence, a search for the truth. Okay, Absolutely. that's what it's got to be. It can't be for defense. It can't be for prosecution. It can't be for, you know, just closing a case uh, to get it off your desk for, for just just to close it. it. There there has to be a finding if we can if we can make that finding of what more li likely than not is actually the truth of the matter and what can we reconcile in other words you know a person is giving a statement a representation uh and, and how can we reconcile that uh against the forensic facts and evidence that we already know about a case or how do we how do we put these different pieces of the puzzle together to make a determination, more likely than not, what really happened. Absolutely. Totally agree with you, 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, another thing that I thought was very interesting, because you and I are, are privy, uh, and as a matter of fact, you far more than me, because you actually taught these classes. I mean, I teach interviewing, but you've actually taught some of the more well-known interviewing uh, systems in the United States. You know, you, you, you uh, were very much involved with Reed Technique, and then I think uh, you've been very much involved with, uh, in the past, with Stan Waters, uh, who's known across the United States as the lie guy and his uh, and his kinesic interviewing right uh, but over the years uh, Dan let me ask you a, a personal professional question have you not after taking all of these you know types of training and taught them have you come down with your own Dan Sisnowski system of interviewing yes I did because what turned out to be I was looking at everything so well Sometimes how come it's not working? Uh, but I think even more importantly, when I start really uh, making that transition or, or, or the pendulum swinging completely somewhere else is because here's some research that's coming out saying, well, this isn't working. This, we don't believe this is true anymore. And it goes back to the old watch the behavior, watch their eyes, watch their eyes. And there's so much research out there that in the last maybe eight, 10 years saying that stuff doesn't work anymore. Uh, we can't put a whole lot of effort, especially when I'm saying it doesn't work, as far as saying, I truly believe that person is being deceptive. We can't think that. We can't say that. But we learn that. And we used to teach it. And that was the scary part. And, and then I said, well, let me, let me take a little bit from Reed. Let me take a little bit what I was doing with like, practical kinesic interview technique, put these things together. Because like I said, any time I was teaching, especially uh, the practical kinesic interview technique, uh, because that was Stan's course he developed, so I was teaching his stuff. But I would take things out, put my own twist to it, because I, I'm using this in the real world. And I said, well, this isn't working over here. Let me let me tweak it out. Or how can I make it um, 
the light bulb come on in, 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 the, in the student's eyes so they can walk out with this. Just because we call it a practical kinesic interview technique doesn't mean it's practical. Correct. I, I want to get something, and I tell people when I first start teaching, look, the goal here is today. When you're done, when you walk out after three days, five days, whatever it's going to be, did you learn at least one thing in the class that you can use in the real world? Because I live in the real world, I work in the real world, I interview in the real world. And just because we see something, well, it's, a lot of times it doesn't work. Uh, but then again, more importantly, we're, we're back to, can I defend myself in court? And that's why I came out and put these different twists. I, and I, I had to change and adapt and go, well, uh, we see this movement going towards this peace model. You know, a kinder, gentler way to interview. Uh, but again, the typical techniques that we have here tend to be somewhat aggressive. I know you did it. You better tell me you did it. I'm going to prove you did it. Then I'm going to throw your butt in jail. Well, you know, uh, let me uh, let me interrupt for just a second uh, sure. because I'm I'm really interested in uh, this peace system that you're talking about of interviewing, and and then also I, I and they use that in Great Britain. I understand from from what you're discussing today. Uh, you know what uh, what's their success rate in comparison to ours? Because I mean, people's behavior all over the world is is fairly universal. You know, the motivations, I mean, I don't care if you're from Europe or from the United States, the motivations to do one thing or another are essentially fairly, you know, fairly consistent. But, uh, you know, how, what is their success rate over there? Well, they're finding out it, it's really, really high. And then they came out a number of years, we're talking about probably close to 20 years, when they're coming out in the UK, particularly, because that's where it got started, they're saying, well, um, we got to get away from this aggressive tactic. In fact, they came out, and in the UK, it is illegal for police officers to lie to a criminal suspect. And of course, here you know, we can do it. We got two United States Supreme Court decisions says you can. So of course, we we take you know a lot of latitude with that sometimes. But when they started saying that in the UK, this oh my gosh. It's over. We're never going to get a confession anymore. It isn't going to work anymore. They're not going to talk. And they find out just the opposite. Because, again, they're getting more information because they're learning to shut up and listen to what the individual is saying. And then let the inconsistencies come out. And then we can go to court all day long and testify on inconsistencies. So it's been very successful. You know, that that sounds really good. Uh let me just ask you, uh, can you discuss any cases that you've had in the past, one way or another, Dan, that involved false confessions? Uh, I'm looking at some. Some I can't comment on because they're very, very active. In fact, I got one that I'm working on uh, that deals with the false confession of a juvenile. And coming across uh, some of his research, you know, the, the attorney I'm working for, uh, she's like, wow, um, it, it really resonated. And we found out that, like I said, the recent research, uh, the one email I got back from, she said, jackpot, here it is. Here's now I can go to, uh, to the prosecutor and say, well, there's a problem, perhaps. I would think that an attorney would hire someone like you for two purposes uh, with regards to, number one, being an educational witness before the jury and and you know for our audience an educational witness is just basically that some is an expert a subject matter expert that comes in and 
tells the jury about a particular dynamic or a field of study, for instance, you know, forensic interviewing, okay? Uh, and then they might want to use you as a rebuttal expert, especially in a case where false confession is alleged, where they've acted a certain way, meaning the investigators, and then uh, you come in and discuss, well, this is how really how a interview should really be done. D does that make sense to you, Dan? Oh, absolutely. It's exactly what, what happens uh, from both sides of the aisle. Uh, I'll get contacted from a criminal defense attorney and say, well, I, I've got this case. Uh, my client, unfortunately, uh, confessed to the police. Uh, I'm getting involved after the fact. Can you tell me, um, especially if they got any kind of documentation, uh, interviews, uh, videos, uh, was this basically a fair interview? And I'll call them as I see them. Uh, but when I start looking at there's some problems, I'm going to point that out to be that rebuttal. Um, but again, I'll get sometimes uh, contact from a police agency and say, well, well, we did this interview. Uh, the detective got the interview. And now it's going to be challenged in court that he did something wrong. And of course, I, I fortunately was able to look at this one particular uh, case uh, out of Indiana it looked at the video, the detective did a really good job. And it always comes down to me, I'm, I'm looking, during the entire interview, I don't care how many, did the detective or investigator say or do anything that would cause an innocent person to confess? That's, that's kind of my threshold. Okay, but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about you. Let's go back over uh, some of your background and, and how you prepared uh, for what you're doing today, some of the education and training that you and experience you had. And then let's talk about how people can get a hold of Dan Sosnowski outside of going through Martinelli and Associates. Sure. I started off, I joined the Army. Let's start there. I joined the Army in 1969. Uh, was a military police officer. Uh, of course, that gave me my my taste. And I, I think I really wanted, I liked it. So when I, when I get out of the Army, uh, of course, I want to join the police department. I did that and I got out of the army in '72, and in 1973, I was able to join a police agency uh, in a suburb on the far south side of Chicago. And of course, then got my appetite, got my experience, and said, "Well, I already know if I'm going to go anywhere in this day and age, that would be I have to have some education." So I was working full time as a police officer and going to class at a community college full time. Once um, you know, I, I got a two year degree. Uh, then I said, found out there was another police agency suburb, far northwest suburbs. I went there and they were big on education. So they kept saying, well, go, go, go for education. And so I finally got my, my baccalaureate degree, criminal justice. Uh, I knew somebody that was working at Reed at the time. Uh, and he said, well, once you decide to make that switch, uh, you can apply. So I did. Uh, got accepted. And uh, I figured, well, I'll do that. Uh, of course, the, the, I mean, the, the bottom line is, well, if I get my four-year degree, maybe I can join the FBI. You know, everybody thinks like that. Uh, but that never happened. Cause, uh, so I, I joined, you know, the, the Reed organization, went to my polygraph training, was six months long, really learned a lot, and was kind of told, even I was lucky enough when John Reed was still alive, uh, to learn from him and say, you know, because cause I had to take a polygraph test to be accepted as a student. Oh, and interesting. Whenever how it felt when you sat in that chair, uh, how did my polygraph examiner treat you? Uh, 
my polygraph examiners treat everybody with respect and dignity. And that's what I want you to learn and walk away from no matter what you do. So it resonated with me and it just stuck with me. So, but eventually, you know, I got involved in doing my polygraph, uh, was working for a private company, uh, went back and forth and read a couple of different times, um, wanted to do more of the teaching. And it's like anything else, you got to, got to wait, got to serve your time. I, I didn't have a lot of patience. So I went somewhere else and opportunities came along and I, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And like I said, it, then it was, you know, teaching for, you know, well, I said close to 20 years for, for Stan Walters. And, and people kept saying, well, you need to develop your own course. I mean, you, you put a different spin to it anyway. I said, well, okay. So I finally did. And, and it's just, you know, it's really to me taken off as far as not the volume, but it's the quality uh, that I'm hearing back from it. Or in these three days or these five days that I did these other courses. Uh, I'm walking out of here knowing I could put these things in a real application and then embracing, you know, the peace model. And that's why I developed uh, the course called Five Stages of Successful Interview Interrogations based on the peace model. And I, and I wrote it because I said, if we're lucky enough to get any kind of admission, statement, confession, whatever you're going to call it, Jenny, what's one of the first motions that's filed in court is motion to suppress. Of course. Hey, Dan, so, I, I, you're doing such a great job. And actually, you have so much information that I want to bring you back again. But just to kind of wrap this up, how can people get a hold of Dan Sosnowski? The easiest way to contact me is call me on my cell phone. It's always with me. It's 24-7. Uh, it's my office number, my cell phone number, every, it's, which is area code 770-843-1019. And then, well, what's Dan? What's his background? What's his qualifications? I would encourage you to go to my website, which is www.polygraph-pro.com. And they can see my background. Or they can see my, my CDs on there. Uh, and again, fortunately, I've been in the right time, right place, got some really good, interesting training. Um, and I and I apply everything I learn and, and give it to either students. And even once I teach, I, I give people my card and say, look, if it's two years from now, if you've been one of my courses and you got a question, call me. Oh, that's um, fantastic. We're here, we're here to help. Well, that's, that's just wonderful. Listen, I want to have you back again discussing these issues because deception and finding the truth are two of the major challenges that we have in law enforcement. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, a polygraph examiner and forensic interviewer, Dan Sosnowski, on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. 